We were commemorating Muhammad Abbasi, the Hebdo gift of the givers in Gaza who was killed. There were two women who came and for over an hour they filmed us and they swore at me and then afterwards they came up to me and called me a self-hating Jew who was a disgrace to Judaism. Comrades, we talk to tons of experts when we write an episode here at Politically Aware. But we only get to show you tiny bits of their great insights. So now we're letting you in on the whole thing. This is the Politically Aware podcast. Let's get away. For our episode on South Africa's ICJ case and our country's relationship with both Israel and Palestine, we spoke to Zinat Adam. She is the deputy director of the Afro-Middle East Center, a research institute based in Johannesburg, focusing on the Middle East and Africa-Middle East relations. Hi Zinat, thank you so much for joining us today. So can you tell us about the relationship between SA and Palestine, both past and present? Historically, uh, both countries had developed uh, settler colonialism around the same time in 1948. This was when Israel was officially formulated and when the institution of apartheid was installed in South Africa. During that time, the apartheid government of South Africa and um, the uh, apartheid government of Israel had shared a lot of uh, policies in terms of the subjugation of the native people of the land. So rooted in the apartheid mentality of settler colonialism, people were brought from outside of the region and established into Palestine while displacing the native people. In 1948, it was what we call the Nakba, which is considered by Palestinians as the great catastrophe. More than 531 villages were razed to the ground and people forcibly displaced to move into enclaves such as Gaza, away from the original places of abode. With wars during 1967, Israel annexed even further land. And since then, there has been a gradual yet consistent uh, introduction of settlements in the areas that are supposed to be free Palestine, continuing the occupation of the Palestinian people and including the building of walls and security infrastructure that completely disenfranchises and deprives the Palestinian people of their right to self-determination. Similarly, we experienced that during apartheid and we saw what the kind of settlements that were created in terms of Bantustans did to our people. And that continued up until 1994. South Africa reached its freedom at that stage. Um, and Nelson Mandela has famously said that the freedom of South Africa cannot be enjoyed until the Palestinians are free. So since 1994, that has been our policy of supporting in solidarity with the Palestinian people for their freedom as well. In the last few years, several international organizations, including Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, as well as several UN organs, have identified and expressed that what is taking place in Palestine is absolutely a system of apartheid. So what does the ICJ ruling mean for South Africa and its place in the world? What we saw happening in the 111 days was a genocide, ethnic cleansing, and the deliberate attack on civilian infrastructure, including hospitals, schools, uh, mosques, churches, uh, indiscriminate bombing, carpet bombing, um, including in areas that were designated as safe zones. 
Uh, and so we couldn't sit back and allow this to continue. And South Africa uh, sought refuge in the international instruments such as the Genocide Convention and then applied to the International Court of Justice on the 29th of December. And as early as the end of October, President Cyril Ramaphosa and uh, our Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, Dr. Naledi Pando, uh, had begun making statements that um, this is something that is... Uh, allowing for the killing of Palestinians en masse without uh, addressing the rules of engagement, without ensuring that humanitarian law is uh, protected and that uh, Palestinians, civilians, are, are protected. It is also uh, a way in which South Africa is holding the rest of the world accountable um, to the global governance structures to say that we cannot abandon uh, the international order that has been created over decades and that these courts were developed with the intention of preventing genocide. It began in response to World War II, it began in response to the Holocaust, and yet we haven't instrumentalized those organs in order to ensure that that never happens again, that genocide never takes place again, that ethnic cleansing never happens again, and that discrimination on the level of apartheid is eliminated. And so in utilizing the court, South Africa has really um, emphasized the need for reform of the global uh, governance infrastructure. Okay, so what are the potential negative implications for South Africa's relationship with the West, you know, because of our case of the ICJ? South Africa has indicated that they will continue to support Palestinian liberation within the parameters of a two-state solution with the understanding that issues such as um, the right to self-determination, the right to uh, Palestinians in the diaspora returning, and the right to Palestinians having their own security and state infrastructure would be imperative um, to finding peace in the Middle East. Uh, some of that resonates with countries in the West, but most of them, including the United States and the UK, have a great affinity for Israel. And have been supporting the white settler colonialist project uh, by Israel in the Middle East. Um, they have been vehement in and adamant in their stance that the position South Africa has taken uh, is uh, antagonistic, is something that is going to uh, not produce a peaceful settlement, but South Africa has been firm in its stance. Uh, this has been in muted diplomatic tones, but the message has been passed that there may be uh, economic repercussions, there may be other repercussions for South Africa. But South Africa has stood firm in saying we would like to see the United Nations performing at a level that is protective of the lives of Palestinians uh, that are at risk. Um, and we have not seen that up until now. The United Nations is paralyzed and compromised uh, particularly at the Security Council level, where the United States has used its veto power to protect Israel and to endorse and give Israel carte blanche to the kind of atrocities that it is committing and perpetrating in the name of self-defense. Now, there has been a great level of frustration in the global south that there has been some delay in prosecuting 
uh, leaders where war crimes and crimes against humanity have been known to have been committed. Palestine has also approached the ICC. South Africa um, had previously uh, on a, on a, on the 2009 uh, Operation Cast Lead approached the ICC to have uh, members of the IDF prosecuted uh, for crimes against humanity and for war crimes, and yet there has not been movement at the ICC, noting that the ICC is an independent court, whereas the ICJ is the world court attached to the United Nations, and it is the pioneering and uh, presidential court uh, of the world. And so by South Africa needing its case at the ICJ, it was significant that it didn't stop at the ICC and that it looked into the laws on genocide and on the convention. People recognized that the South African team was absolutely meticulous in their undertaking and were able to address questions that the court may have had long before the court even had an opportunity to develop those questions. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me. I like the way you guys do the Politically Aware program. It's, it's so vibrant. Central Cape Town gridlocked on Saturday as tens of thousands of South Africans took part in a march in support of Palestinians living in Gaza. I've come here today to um, protest against Israeli genocide in, in Palestine. And um, we needed to counter protest against people who are trying to sanitize what is happening uh, in Palestine. And uh, we need to make people aware that these people are standing over here, dancing on the graves of our forefathers and our heroes who had died in the fight against apartheid. I think that uh, the fact that South Africa has taken Israel to court is uh, a really massive and big move, like globally, because you must understand we were also colonized at one stage in our life. So we actually were colonized, then we got our uh, freedom and we became lawyers and now we are defending people that are facing the same thing we were facing. So for us it's a proud moment and yeah, we will always stand with Palestine, free Palestine. This is not a fight with Jews and Muslims. It's never been a fight about Jews and Muslims. It's about people, evil people, who have tried to use the suffering of Jews to make money. We sent Celine out on location to speak to Jamie Rosengarten from the South African Jews for a Free Palestine to find out what their organization stands for. I think as Jewish people, this issue feels quite close and personal um, to us. We're descendants of people who've survived and often didn't survive the Holocaust. So we very much know what political violence looks like. But also as South Africans, we've been, you know, the benefactor of another form of structural violence in the form of apartheid. So we understand these issues quite well from both sides of the spectrum. But regardless of that, one doesn't really need to be Jewish as the pro-Palestinian movement has shown. It just takes a base level of compassion and understanding of humanity to want to be compelled to be involved in something like this. So why did you personally decide to get involved? I guess my journey with anti-Zionism actually began when I was 15 and I went to Israel because I'd always been told that Israel was my homeland and I didn't really know what Zionism meant and didn't understand these issues, but this was always something I was brought up believing was an intrinsic part of me. And on going to Israel, it's just quite noticeable that the society is very dystopian. Um, you know, a lot of people say, go then, you'll realize it's not apartheid. I'm a born free, so I don't know what apartheid looked like. But it was quite obvious what was there from the soldiers and the guns to the noticeable differences between Palestinian and Jewish areas. Um, that there was something deeply wrong. As I got older, I learned the language to describe that. 
but um, I guess I got involved because I could see something which was just deeply unnatural and deeply dystopian. Okay, and how has this been received by the broader Jewish community? Um, I think initially there was a lot of backlash and a lot of vitriol. Um, the thing is Zionism and Zionists, there's a lot of, they really try infiltrate the institution of Judaism. So a lot of formal Jewish institutions um, distance and really atomize anybody who's got a dissenting voice. Um, at the moment, the anti-Zionist Jewish community in South Africa is large and it's continuing to grow. So at the moment, um, I consider that my community and people who are true to Judaism. You mentioned the apartheid there and like between the apartheid there and the apartheid here, do you feel like there are similarities? Do you feel that it's very different? There's obviously naturally differences. In South Africa, for example, there was a reliance on the black population as a labor force, which isn't the same in Israel. But above all, I think this isn't a question of opinion. You know, it's a legal question. Um, and fundamentally, according to the United Nations, Israel is an apartheid state. You could look at the laws. There's laws in terms of anti-miscegenation. So people of different religions can't marry and gain citizenship. This population registration reacts, similar to how we are Dompas, people need to carry around a card. And I think fundamentally, the main thing which demonstrates that as apartheid is I'm South African. I was born in South Africa. I have no historic, cultural, any link to Israel. Um, but because I'm born Jewish, I can travel there, I can move and live on land where people I know, many of my friends who are Palestinian and born there, cannot do. And I have more rights than they do, which, in simple terms, away from the legal stuff, is really just plainly apartheid, you know? Have you experienced any pushback from your stance? Yeah, I've experienced significant pushback. I think it's a tactic that Zionists want to do, is they want to make Israel seem like it's a Jewish issue when it's got nothing actually to do with Judaism. It's a political issue, an issue of settler colonialism. But what that will mean is if Jewish people are anti-Zionism, because there have been anti-Zionist Jews throughout history before Israel was even conceptualized through its conceptualization to now. But they'll try individualize them. They will try vilify them and get them into a state of silence. So I've received a lot of that. But it's constantly when somebody finds out you're anti-Zionist, they'll say, but you're not really Jewish or you're a self-hating Jew or a lot of questions which are just implicitly undermining your Judaism. Um, I think in addition to that, there's the more explicit examples. Recently at a protest outside Cape Union Mart, where we're encouraging a boycott since they support the IDF, there were two women who came and for over an hour they filmed us, they swore at us. That same day someone spat at us. And we were commemorating Muhammad Abbasi, the Hebdo gift of the givers in Gaza who was killed. As we sang, long live Muhammad Abbasi, long live the gift of the givers. They jeered and they laughed and they swore at me. And then afterwards they came up to me and called me a self-hating Jew who was a disgrace to Judaism and got into a lot of very personal attacks. We're in a big election year and there is this theory that it's very convenient that South Africa has taken this to the ICJ. What are your thoughts about it? Well, I think politics is a dirty game and it's very often not just one thing. I think we need to be upfront that there's a lot of political grandstanding and a lot of political parties realize that the issue of Palestine can get them election points. So that's definitely a motivation. With that said, the reason behind that is because South Africans from all tenets of society have a strong connection with the people of Palestine because of our history of apartheid and because of our history of settler colonialism. And what are your hopes for the future? My hopes for that is from the river to the sea that there will be one free Palestine where all people, regardless of race, regardless of religion, can live together um, in equality. There was a stage when it looked like a one unified South Africa was impossible, you know. And although our country is fraught with issues and we still are grappling with the lived legacy of colonialism, 
Um, we had the capacity to freedom dream. So that's my hope for Palestine. And I think on that, just as Mandela said, um, our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of Palestine. The freedom of Palestine is incomplete without the freedom of South Africa. So the fight for free Palestine is a fight against the lived legacy of settler colonialism in all its manifestations, both in Cape Town, um, where we are, and in Palestine. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. We also spoke to Dr. Vanessa Farr, a senior research fellow at the Sheffield Hallam University. As someone who's lived in both apartheid South Africa and Palestine, she's uniquely qualified to speak about the comparison being drawn between the two. Um, having been in and out of Gaza several times safely in the course of my work, but you go through 13 different military checkpoint processes, uh, of which the last five belonged to Hamas, uh, but the first seven were, were Israeli. Um, and I'd been in a lot of Gaza several times, and then uh, and then Operation Cast Lead started at the end of December 2008. And then early in January, after the bombing stopped, I was one of the first people in my team to go back into the Gaza Strip. And again, I was driven around uh, in, a, in an armored car, and I saw what the Israelis had done, uh, which included things like they had uprooted all of the mature orange trees that Gazans had lovingly um, looked after for decades by then. Uh, Palestine used to be the biggest exporter of oranges into the world, actually, uh, before the foundation of the State of Israel. So the Israelis had destroyed all the agricultural land. The thing that shocked me most was that they had carefully driven these tanks through the corners of the house where they knew people's kitchens were. So there were whole houses that were still kind of standing, but the area where the kitchen was had been destroyed. And I, I didn't really understand why until I was chatting to one of the women who was you know, trying to cook some food on her battery over an open fire. She said, they don't want us to have any comfort. They don't want us to have any pleasure in life. This was at the same time as Israel had done things like ban the import of pasta into Gaza. Remember that Israel decides what goes in and out of of Gaza and has done for the last 16 years. And one of the things they banned was pasta because they didn't want people eating comfort food. Someone had said, well, it's a comfort food. At least there's a white South African who grew up in apartheid. I knew how, just how mad white body supremacy really can be. So how is Palestine drawing parallels with apartheid? Now, what are the, the pros and cons of this comparison? Well, I mean, I suppose what strikes you hardest when you get when you get to Palestine is the amazingly powerful infrastructure of segregation. So, you know, we knew a lot. We knew a lot about that here. I mean, I remember very well as a child, you know, growing up in places where there were these huge signs that said "Neef Net for Blancas," you know, or not, you know, non-whites not allowed or whatever. Um, but when you get to when you get to Palestine, there's, for instance, this incredible apartheid wall that then built across parts of um, Jerusalem and, and certainly all the way into Eastern Palestine. Um, that's just mind-blowing. I can't even describe how awful that wall is. There's a apartheid on speed. When you go into Eastern Palestine, when you drive around in the West Bank, there are roads that only illegal settlers can use. They've got separate number plates. There's a whole set of different laws that apply to them. The Israelis have changed their laws in such a way that there's a whole different legal system that applies to Palestinians, including things like they can take people into arbitrary administrative detention and keep them there for as long as they want to and torture them. And, you know, they will arrest tiny, tiny little people, two, three, four-year-old people um, 
are being arrested and taken into custody. I mean, it's completely nuts. Uh, it's it's just extraordinary how violent it is. You know, if you think about the success of, of apartheid propaganda in South Africa, of just like not telling white South Africans how awful uh, life was for everybody else that we were oppressing, which is my memory of being a kid. You know, you just didn't know. Uh, you just were so protected from the truth. Um, and Israelis have got the same blinders. I mean, they, they know that, that Palestinians are evil and should be eliminated. Like, that's their story. Um, but they've got no concept of the, of the horrifying suffering. And actually, I, I guess in the same way as, as white-bodied South Africans um, in, a, in the apartheid era, they also just don't know how dehumanizing and horrible um, the system is for them. It's, it's kind of interesting looking at your own country's horrifying political experiment, like from the other end of the telescope where you, know, you can see it even bigger and in, in more frightening ways. So what is Essay's relationship with the Israel-Palestine conflict? So 1948 is one of those red letter years, right? So Europe having bombed the hell out of itself and killed European Jews, right? Please remember this, it's really important. They killed Yiddish speaking, which is a sort of derivative language similar to German, Jews, and lots of other people, but mostly Jews. And and then they decided that they didn't want to deal with the problem of the fact that they hated Jews or historical reasons that go back centuries. Uh, so instead they were like, why don't we just go to Palestine and, and steal it and, and give it to Jews? At the same time as the apartheid government was sitting here going, it's a really good idea. It's actually a really good idea to have a tiny minority of white bodied people uh, preside over and make life hell for the indigenous black bodied people of this country. So they've got, you know, they're basically the, the ideologies and the sentiments and the global consensus that this is an okay thing to do uh, was on the side of both those regimes in 1948. Now, as we know, basically around about 1994, we go one way, they go the other way. Israel is now so violent that it's committing genocide in Gaza and unbelievably cruel crimes in the West Bank, which is not Hamas-held territory. Um, and we're sitting here with a whole bunch of problems that we've got to deal with, and, uh, but we're not actually in the middle of a genocide. Why is South Africa, of all of the countries, taking Israel to the ICJ? So I think it's, I've got two answers to this, if I make, if, if, if it's okay for me to have two answers. Um, the first of them is because it's morally the most important thing that we've done as a nation. It is the most crucial piece of foreign uh, relationship advocacy work that South Africa has ever done. And for me, it tells me that we've suddenly weirdly grown up as a country. And I mean, I know we haven't really in 30 years, we've had a moment to be a country. But this is an incredibly adult, an incredibly responsible, an incredibly morally just thing. We're punching above our weight, uh, where all these super rich nations are going, how many bonds could we sell you? South Africa's going, how quickly can we stop this unbelievable cruelty? So that's huge. Now, the second part of my answer is a little bit more difficult, but I'm going to try and articulate it clearly. I don't disagree with young people who say, you know, we can't keep the light on, we can't, keep, we can't feed kids, we're not getting kids to school, people are dying of hunger in the Eastern Cape, our water's polluted, our air is disgusting. Yeah. So how do we turn that camera back on ourselves? 
And if we are an amazing moral nation led by grown-ups, uh, I want to see us talk about this for the election coming up. Because if you can interrogate the leaders of the party that you are supporting for this election, if you can say to them, what's your stance on Palestine? What do you say about genocide? And they've got a clear and coherent answer, which the ANC has just shown us they do have. Then I'm guessing you've got a good reason to vote for that party. Um, and then you've also got a really good reason to ask that party how we are going to continue to work really hard on fixing the problems we've got here. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you to all the wonderful experts who helped us to make the episode. Watch our latest episodes on YouTube, catch our podcast wherever you get yours. Until next time, stay aware.